Welcome to On Air, a podcast discussion at the intersection of artificial intelligence and international relations, where we will discuss the development of IR theory, law, and practice in the age of AI. From Tokyo, Japan, welcome to the On Air podcast. I'm your host, Chris Lamont, and today I'm joined by Arno Kurtz, Associate Professor at Montclair State University and a Digital Studies Fellow at the Kluge Center at the Library of Congress and Global Fellow at the Wilson Center. Arnaud is here to discuss his latest work in digital humanities. I've had the pleasure of collaborating with Arnaud on a number of projects over the years, including summer schools in Tunisia and Croatia on transitional justice. Some of these projects we might talk about later on in today's episode. And of course, most recently, I'm collaborating with Arnaud on a um, fun project known as the Justice Craft Initiative. Arnaud, welcome to the On Air podcast. It's a pleasure to be here, Chris. It's, it's really great to have you. And I think I'll start with just asking you, what got you started in working in digital humanities? The uh, early beginnings of um, tinkering and playing around with this idea, maybe we trying to deconstruct um, digital humanities first, digital anything that has to do with the online and virtual space and humanities. Um, we're both social scientists trained in political science and international relations and your podcast deals with international relations and or global issues with a specific focus on artificial intelligence. And so I think we're, we're talking not real hardcore humanities, but the humanistic social sciences, I think. And so I think one of the ideas why I was so interested in these digital humanities approaches is that as a political scientist, you often are confronted with this idea of big data. And we grew up in an era where you had pretty much the dichotomy where the tension between qualitative and quantitative research and the quantitivists uh, were trying to really push that the qualitative researchers use a language like independent and dependent variables. And I think this idea of digital humanities has bridged that gap a bit because you can still look at a lot of big data, um, but the beauty about this is how you visualize it and how you package it. And so it makes it easy, for instance, to tell stories and then to present them online and create more accessibility for a broader audience. So you go away from your silo and your ivory tower in academia, and you really bring this research to there where it matters. Right. And your early work on this focused on memory studies, if I remember correctly. Indeed. indeed. And I think that's an excellent example when you home in on this. And um, we have a dear friend and colleague, Professor Yeran Pavlokovic, who is at the University of Rijeka in Croatia, with whom we've also done quite a few summer schools on transitional justice. And it was there at the origins where we experimented with this idea of how can we bring in some technology that helps us better understand some of these situations. And Vietnam is a so-called memory hunter, someone that works uh, deeply in memory politics and looks particularly at monuments and how sites or memory sites, what he also calls in a more landscape, vision memory scapes. Other scholars have, of course, coined this notion. But the idea here is how certain physical sites then affect the imaginary collective memory of a society, of a specific group, for instance, a victim group, or then at the national level, more broadly speaking, or then if we take it to a more complex and multi-level layer, also the diaspora. He was working with the diaspora creations across the globe. And so the idea here is to bring it back to digital humanities and digital methods 
was to create a map of certain monuments and then see how they connect across diverse um, spaces um, that could be physical or virtual, as I said. And um, I think in terms of mass violence, mass atrocities and genocide, um, this was one of the early tools, for instance, in Srebrenica, in, in Bosnia-Herzegovina, where the genocide took place in the mid-90s, to create facts about some of these events. And so these tools became really a battle horse uh, for victims groups and those trying to seek established facts, uh, historical facts about these events, rather than politicians and certain advocacy groups that were trying to push a narrative that was often far from the truth and with embellished numbers and, and create at times also greater victim numbers um, on, on different sides. Right. So for, for these large systemic crimes like crimes against humanity and, and genocide, these provide powerful, potentially even investigative tools that allow for a mapping of atrocity, but also for memory after the fact. So for, as you said, dealing with denialism and confronting those who who would inflate or or deny numbers when it comes to this. And one of the things that's interesting about these projects is also they emphasize accessibility. So anybody can just access this either through like a app, for example, or um, a website. Indeed, indeed. And so I just was last week and I was in Baltimore with a project um, that is the Maryland Lynching um, Memorial Project. And they have also Maryland, the state of Maryland is one of the few states that have an active and um, currently engaging truth commission on these issues of lynching and racial violence in the 19th and 20th century in the United States and specifically in the state of Maryland. And so some of these issues um, that were discussed there had also to do with how to best get across some of these issues so that we can educate a broader public. And here, there's a very traditionalist approach where one needs to establish markers, meaning a landmark on, for instance, a site where lynching had occurred. And now that might still be an empty field or at times that more likely it might be a development, whether that is commercial or residential, with the residents or those people and passerbys that see this on a daily basis no idea or no knowledge of what happened there. And so the, the physical approach um, here from, from these activist groups and, and then the commission is to establish signs um, that, that really inform and educate the, the population. But um, in addition to that, um, there is, thanks to uh, the advances in technology, this big push in trying to create apps, for instance, uh, where there is an augmented reality, for instance, where uh, when you are on your phone and you are in that specific location, for instance, you will be able to see a crowd, for instance, around the imaginary tree. And so you will be able to understand what it meant that these awful lynchings often were occurring in a sense of public spectacle. And, and so um, so the, the idea then of accountability and to raise awareness and a, a conscious about how these events panned out and that the public does have a responsibility, a civic engagement 
that oftentimes is ignored or not quite understood in a way that it ought to be. And so I think uh, one of these issues that then the Truth Commission and many Truth Commissions are dealing with is collecting um, the data, the evidence, and then compiling it. And with the new technology and especially then generative artificial intelligence, there might be really great ways of then curating um, depending on the amount of data that's available in an archive and how that archive or the database is, is built to really use a potential that could help um, accessibility and really um, transmit and disseminate that knowledge to a much broader public audience um, to really provide a, a more holistic experience without necessarily re-traumatizing um, certain populations. So then there's um, a fine line to be walked and so that um, different museums um, around this issue have also tried to figure out how to harness some of these digital technologies uh, for a uh, more acute understanding of these issues. And so there might be certain relics such as a rope or other of clothing like a, a pair reading glasses, for instance, that will certainly be a powerful symbolic element in terms of conveying that story. And along with digital narrative storytelling or audio files that are also integrated in that room or museum space, curatorial space that is made public, these are tools that can certainly help enhance the experience without, again, potentially traumatizing viewers and or descendants of, of these victims. You bring up something that is really important here, and that's where in the past, sites of memory were physical spaces that you would go to and you would look at physical objects or might be a physical monument. But now, sites of memory are also in virtual spaces. And so you have augmented reality. So you can really transport an individual who's visiting one of these virtual memory sites to a place and <laughs> virtually where you can you can interact with what might have occurred. And this raises all sorts of both, as you mentioned, ethical and and moral dilemmas in relation to what does this mean for for memory and how is it experienced by those who are making use or visiting these virtual memory spaces. In, indeed, Chris, and and I wanted to um, to speak also about the the, the flip side or, or the darker side of these things. Right um, here, my my glasses always half full, and I see the opportunities and then the potential that really helps create voices for those that did not have um, initially the voice uh, that they ought to have in these spaces uh, publicly and among their communities. But with these community as oriented projects. The, the opportunities come also at a risk. We also know that not everyone wants to know what happened in the past, or they have a picture of the past that has been passed down through generations. When we think about here, again, let's stick with the American example of the lost cause, civil war experience, the restoration. Oftentimes, the descendants of, of these perpetrators get a story that has been passed down oral history, if, if we want to cite Maurice Hobbock's how stories and, and so the imaginary of a nation are created. It really starts in terms of the um, stories around the fire pit. And so 
if you as an individual, let's take a, a middle-aged um, white man from the South, have been told by your grandfather and the grandfather has been told by his grandfather or family members a story about the family. And if it was rooted, of course, in false historical facts, for instance, that the South has not fought for the right to maintain slavery. You just got to look at the Constitution and you'll be pretty clear cut about these things. Uh, but I think when we think in terms of creating a path forward of how we deal with the past, it is what Max Schalik, a Jewish German intellectual, has said in times of upheavals and very tense societal issues in Germany currently. It's not Vergangenheitsbewältigung, the dealing with the past that was coined in, in Germany as the supermodel, but it's Gegenwartsbewältigung, meaning dealing with the present. And Faulkner has also said that in, in his writings, William Faulkner, the past is always present. And, and so I think here the crucial issue is identity politics then. If we want to move forward, we have to do this in a way that does promote accountability. So it's not to say that we should whitewash or that we should ignore any political violence and any injustice and towards any of the victims and to minority groups. But it is also important to understand that from the perpetrator side and the descendants that by pointing out or taking away their initial story, you are shaking their foundation. And so that creates a polarization because it's an existentialist crisis. And so I think constructive dialogue by pointing out to these issues, saying that because the story might have been a false story or not based on facts, that doesn't take away from the importance of dealing with these issues and dealing with them together. And so this respect and this idea that if someone, a trauma, and trauma is not only physical to the victim that really was affected by the crime, but the trauma can be transgenerational. And so this trauma goes beyond the physical pain that one might have through emotions and or um, psychological trauma, but it really hovers and is deeply steeped in then societal and community structures. And so I think to bring it back to our digital humanities uh, project, I think we have an opportunity to bring this and showcase this. I had a conference or a roundtable talk online again, here we go, the technology, with a terrific artist, Adi Melanciano, and faculty from Montclair State University, Julian Brash, who is a professor of anthropology, and Charlotte Kent, who is a associate professor of visual culture here at Montclair. And what was really telling here is how Adi, who is an artist, she's a very eclectic artist who works also on music and sound. But for this um, exhibit that she currently has at the University Galleries and for the roundtable talk, we really look at her visual art, uh, where she uses generative A to create paintings or photographs and, and images that are computer generated and artificially. And so I think what, what's really telling here is the notion of what AI is capable of doing by, for instance, feeding that AI generated image producer certain search terms a name, for instance, or some adjectives. And then if you say a name and 
as you provide it with some historical data or background, it surprisingly, because of the way DS algorithms and then the database is structured, where it searches then the web and or creates based on that pool it's drawing from, very, very surprisingly similar image to, for instance, the initial image that you had in mind. And so she then compares the original image to these generated images. But oftentimes, a name, for instance, gives us a sense of identity, ethnic origins, religious origins. And so it's quite interesting when you, for instance, had an image of a Black person in the 19th century, but because the name sounded like a white bourgeois or aristocratic name, when you generate this through the software, you will not get a Black man as originally stated in that photograph, but only white male. And so you see that bias here already from society. And this this also affects certainly not only race or ethnicity, but also gender. And, and I think here, the risk is when we transpose this to, to international relations and, and our work we do, Chris, in, in memory politics or, or in global studies, more generally speaking, that we have to be aware of what AI is capable of doing so that AI has a great potential in terms of making use for it to, in, in our case, in my case, providing victim voices and those rather voiceless communities a powerful tool to be also more visible and to have uh, a platform to share their ideas and, and their pains, but also their stories and, and promote accountability. But we also have to be aware that AI here can be misused and abused by, by certain powerful actors that then um, spin a completely different narrative. As you know, Chris, you've worked on this field quite a bit. You don't need a lot of footage of a person's audio and visual file to create memes that then completely reverse or distort reality. So, so that's the next problematic issue that we're facing when we're thinking about creating collective memories. If a state or a powerful actor, it could also be a corporate actor, I'm not necessarily saying it has to be a government, but if they want to produce a narrative with the capabilities and technology we have today, it's quite frightening to see where we're not quite at the at the point where this becomes an imminent issue and danger, but there's many scholar, human rights activists, practitioners, but also academics that work on these issues that try to find certain boundaries. Um, where are the ethical limitations of, of using this? And, and I think there's still a lot to do. There's a lot of good work already out there commissions and, and certain working groups or committees that do try to define and delineate certain areas, how it should be used and where opportunities are. So I, I think it's far from being the black and white issue where tech companies praise it as the solution for everything. And, and then doomsdayers say, oh, it's the end of the world. Um, we said that about cell phone technology and, and now we all run around with our handheld devices on a daily basis. It's hard to live without them, and and um, so I think I think there is there is a lot of potential, and um, I, I was very honored and pleased to have a conversation with three different scholars and practitioners that nicely showed how 
for instance, Julian Brash in that discussion was an urban anthropologist. And so to think about also the potential of, of AI in that regard is certainly fascinating when we think about the social injustices that inhabit our urban spaces, whether that is in Tokyo or in New York City or any other bigger city. Absolutely. You brought up so many interesting observations there from the biases that are baked into some of these tools that contain risks for already marginalized groups being marginalized potentially even further, and also the potential for misuse of these tools. You talk about things alluding to developments like deep fakes, and as these things are getting better and better, it's going to be harder to determine. And we're talking about this all in the context of virtual memory spaces, which further complicates this. I was going to ask you specifically, how do you see AI impacting upon the field? You've already alluded to this, that you see this as a set of tools that that have have, have great potential, but also significant risk. But it seems that your bottom line is that we need to understand the limitations of these tools and try to learn to adapt research practice to them and integrate them into our practices. This is a very great question, Chris, and I want to tie back into the smartphone technology. When the iPhone came out not too long ago, it was in 08 or so. And, and so I think I will have a tremendous impact and on our practice, on the research and the pedagogy as the scholars and also teachers that we are at, in the higher education field. And, and I want to maybe reflect on two experiences, uh, one on my Kluge Fellowship here at, in the um, digital studies domain and the Library of Congress. And, and then on my Fulbright work that I've more recently done in Guinea, Guinea Conakry, so West Africa. And I, I want to mention both examples briefly because they show that the AI hype might not be reaching every single one of us. And that reality might bring us back to roots and connectedness that goes beyond the virtual space. So in terms of the uh, Kluge Fellowship on Digital Studies here, the first thing when I arrived here earlier this fall at the center and at the Library of Congress is, of course, we do get a research introduction. And in the sheer amount of materials that the Library of Congress, our, our national library and world library, if you will, receives is phenomenal. Between 15 and 20 2,000 items that the library gets every day. And so this is every day or every week, but in any case, this is quite a substantial amount. So you can imagine how there's a huge backlog of things that need to be cataloged. And then once you start doing research, while the library has certainly digitized a lot of materials and makes it available and, and is trying to also use better search tools that are they're playing around with the idea of generative AI in terms of helping researchers and patrons that come to the library get better access um, to the materials. But what I've realized with my two projects that I'm working on here on climate justice and youth activism doing political change, 
a lot of the materials are still in boxes and in physical pamphlets or some obscure newspapers and other government documents. So it's not necessarily digitized. So we, we got to keep this in mind that while um, we might be able to really get certain things that we had to do physically and not virtually a couple of years ago, they might be now readily available through our apps and through these software tools. There is a commodification. And so that's driven by the private sector. And so this is a word of caution in terms of where do you want this to go and to what extent do civil society organizations, but also governments have a responsibility to make sure that this is also an inclusive tool that helps us manage society and uh, public affairs better. And and I think um, while it's applied also in government, I think, Chris, you wrote about this in, in your piece uh, more recently, that there's certainly a selection bias based on the algorithm. If it is about the social security or other government aid or subsidies disbursements, and so this is certainly something that creates exclusionary practices rather than inclusive practices, even though the automation process through these tools was in the spirit of making life easier and more accessible and help a more transparent and more efficient government. And so the, the second idea is my experience that I had more recently in, in Guinea. And for those who don't know, we've heard about the coup belt um, in, in this area with Niger and other countries. And so um, Guinea is certainly in a similar position right now where they had a coup in fall of 21 and the current uh, president is a former military um, leader. There is talks and there is an active engagement and certainly promoting an election schedule for next year. They're quite behind in that schedule. So the initial euphoria and excitement is a bit subdued now and we'll see what happens. But here, again, the access that populations have to some of these tools is very, very limited. And while in urban areas, there might be access um, to these these software tools that facilitate or that could help certain engagements and a better understanding, a better knowledge when we talk memory politics. Um, in Guinea, for instance, there was a massacre in, in 09, and, and they're finally doing a trial. For some countries, if you, if you think about 15 years later, that seems still very long, but very reasonable compared to other countries that are still waiting decades or, or even centuries, right? When we think about the, the legacies here in the US and, and how we deal with these reparations and acknowledgements. So I think here we need to be aware that the accessibility of these tools is very, very limited to a very, very privileged part of society, world society or global society. And so while the impact will certainly affect our lives, your life, my life, I think we have a, a great opportunity to make sure that the way we embrace it, for instance, in our classroom settings or the way we embrace it in our own research should certainly be against the backdrop of an ethical um, standard and, and, and an engagement and a practice that really promotes these tools responsibly. But we ought not to forget that this is a small part of, of society and we're not quite there yet. And if it were to a big tech, they're ready to provide anything possible. But as we know, 
these tools then come with the ever so promising message of knowledge. Um, knowledge will be uh, will be much more um, accessible and and it's easy to have an educated then citizen or, or resident of that country. But we all know once you're on these platforms, the way they're driven, it's always through the commodification, through the selling of products. And so unless we try to rethink some of these things in terms of public goods and public knowledge, then that, that will certainly be a tension that will continue in our daily struggles with how should we grapple with this and how could we best integrate it within our practices and also professions. Absolutely. And I think one of the the points that you highlight there is a very important word of caution that these tools um, rely on knowledge that's been digitized. And for that which has not been digitized, there is the potential for further and deeper marginalization through an increasing reliance on these tools. And Arno, thank you so much for for joining us today and for your discussion. I think there's so much more still to to talk about on this topic, but unfortunately, we are short of time. For our listeners, as always, if you like the show, we invite you to subscribe and leave us a comment. You can find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And also, don't forget to join us for the next episode of the On Air podcast for a discussion at the intersection of AI and IR theory, law, and practice. Until then, stay human. Thank you.